is week number 33 in our study of the Gospel of John. And for the last five weeks, we've been in this discourse over in John chapter 6 that begins um, back in like verse 26. And so we've been walking through these words that Christ has been teaching. And last week we came to the words that he spoke to them after the people began to grumble. You remember there was a little bit of the discourse between Christ and these people as he went through some of these teachings. And then he had this, um, this startling truth that he laid out to them. And as a result of that, these people began to grumble. And so Christ in verse 44 reiterated what he said that caused them to grumble, basically that God is sovereign in the salvation of men. And so he repeats those things. And then last week we looked at to support that argument that uh, the apostle quotes out of Isaiah 54 and says that it will be God who will teach his people about the Messiah, meaning that this, this comes only, this knowledge, this wisdom, this understanding, knowing who Christ is comes only because God is willing to give someone that truth, to help them to understand it, to teach them directly. And, of course, Jesus said, now, God's not going to come and speak to each one of you. The way he does that is through the scriptures or through his prophets or at this time through Jesus' literal words. That that's how God communicates and it's God who is calling people to Christ. It's God who is giving them this truth and if you don't understand the truth it's because God hasn't given it to you. And so Jesus quotes um, out of Isaiah to, to make that point and to help them to understand that it is God who is sovereign in this understanding about who the Messiah is. So Christ goes on after he says that, and he repeats, and we'll see this morning, he'll repeat again what he's already said. He reaches back and continues this um, metaphor, this analogy between physical bread and literal bread, again saying that he was the bread of life, the very thing that caused them to stumble, and that you have to eat this bread in order to have eternal life. But then he added something and confused them even more. He said that uh, in prophesying about his sacrificial death on the cross, he said, it's my flesh that I will give for the salvation of the world. And so they, they put those two things together and it caused them great concern because they, they start having this argument among themselves saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Meaning, I mean, is he going to cut his little finger off and give it to us so that we can gnaw on it? What's he, what is he talking about? This makes no sense whatsoever. So they begin to grumble. So Christ, we'll see it this morning as we'll begin to read, will again repeat the things that he's been saying using different words to help them understand. This will be the third time that he said this in this dis- discourse because the first time the people started grumbling probably didn't even hear everything that he said. So he repeated that again, and then they began to grumble because he said that he was going to die and that they must eat his flesh, and that caused them even greater concern. And then so he'll come back a third time and explain what he means by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And that's what we're after this morning, is what does that mean? And what does does it mean for us to eat the the, uh, flesh of Christ and to drink his blood? And maybe what you think it is, or it may not. So we'll see, because Christ gives clear explanation of what he means when he says that. So we'll begin reading this morning 
um, back in verse 54, I believe it is, in 52, and then we'll read all the way down through 60 where basically Christ finishes this discourse. has a little more to say, but basically he's finished with his teaching. So beginning in verse 52 of John chapter 6, there the scripture reads, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, for he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So you see, he's really coming to the end of this conversation. And you must admit, or at least I must admit, that when I've read this in the past, it it is a confusing teaching. And, you know, we know some of what he's saying here. And, of course, your mind races probably to the Lord's Supper when he says some of these things. But this is well before Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. So that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about eating the symbolic bread and blood at the Lord's Supper. That is not the context. That is not what he's talking about when you come to this passage. So if that's your understanding, we have to go deeper than that. Because we know nothing at this time in the ministry of Christ about the coming Lord's Supper. It hasn't been instituted. So that's, that's not what he's referring to. As a matter of fact, if he was referring to that, then basically what he says here is if you take that sacrament, as some would call it, right? We would call it an ordinance, but there are those who would say take that sacrament. Then you will live forever. And that's, that's what's required. It's for you to eat the, eat the uh, flesh of Christ and drink his blood. Which is why, by the way, why the sects say that it transubstantiates and becomes his literal bread and blood. Because if you don't do that, then you don't have eternal life. And that's their understanding although it's misguided and, and not correct. But that's the way they see it, and then, so that's why they t- have that teaching of the, of the uh, wine and the bread literally transforming into the body and, and flesh of Christ. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what this means. That's, they miss the point, just like the Jews miss the point. You, and, and a lot of this keys out of, what, out of what he says in verse 51. You see, right there at the end, uh, verse 51, Christ says, And this, the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Talking about what? What is Christ at that point preaching, teaching them about? Yeah, the, the sacrifice that he will do on the cross, the work of the cross. And so this, when you talk about the, the flesh and the blood here, most of the time you're talking about the work of Christ on the cross, okay? So we're going to try and work our way through what he says here to see that he is crystal clear. There is no doubt about what Christ is saying here, although the words sometimes push against you because, you know, there are plenty of people. I went online last night and read again. There are plenty of people who teach that this is a crazy teaching, that this is all about 
cannibalism and eating dead bodies, and, and it's clearly not. And if you just read the words that Christ wrote, that is not what he's talking about. But go online and, and pull up transubstantiate, and you'll see lots of teachings about that are heresy about eating um, the literal blood and, uh, and flesh of Christ. And that's not what he's saying. Now, I want to walk through this so we can, we can see that. You see in verse 52, he says, you know, these Jews, the Jews' understanding was what in verse 52? What did they think Christ was saying? Yeah, that you literally must eat the flesh of Christ. Right? How do you know that's what they were saying? Right, and then later on, what will they say about this? After this passage that I just read this morning, what will they say? This is too hard. This is too difficult. We, we cannot receive this. Because, I mean, if I told you you have to eat my flesh, then that's a pretty hard teaching. And then I repeat it, right? I mean, three times in, this, in the short verses I read, Christ says, you must eat my bread, eat my flesh and drink my blood. So it's not like he was trying to, you know, not say that, right? Or um, avoid that issue. Because he says it three times here. So they heard him loud and clear. They didn't understand him, but they heard him. They had what kind of understanding here? It is superficial, but it's literal, right? Just like everything else that he said, they took literally. This is the problem that you have with Nicodemus. This is the problem that you have with the woman of Samaria. This is the problem that you have with the Jews in chapter 5. This is the problem that you have with the Jews in chapter 6, is that they understood Christ's words only literally, and some of it is literal, right? So, yeah, I mean, what part of what he's just said is literal? I'll give my flesh for the life of the world, right? Meaning what? He's going to give his flesh. I mean, the, the, the word here for flesh is sarks, which always refers to either the body of a person or the body of an animal. I mean, literal, physical body. And he will do that. But in this passage, he's talking metaphorically. Now, I want to know, how, do we, how can we be sure about that? And you just look in verse 53, and he says, So Jesus said to them, and this is the way Jesus always answers people when they grumble, right? When they begin to complain. This is the fourth time he said this in this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you. Meaning what? I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying to you. I'm the guy who works miracles. You ought to listen to what I say because I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. They miss that part and they don't believe him even though he did work the miracles. And so he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Talking spiritually Metaphorically or physically? Which one? What would you say? Spiritually. Spiritually, Metaphorically, right? How do you know that? How can you be absolutely certain? Go ahead, Ranzel. As the scripture interprets scripture in verse uh, 63, he says the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Absolutely. So he's, he's been talking on this spiritual level. All right, now, I'll tell you. Go ahead. Eating somebody's flesh and blood does, in the physical sense doesn't necessarily imply that you have life in you. Right. And that's... That part of the statement. Absolutely. In this, in this, look at the last thing that he says, this verse. 
you have no life in yourselves. Go ahead, Jerry. And in their blindness, though, if he was talking physically, then they wouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah. They're alive. Right. They're already alive. That's right. And when he says, absolutely, he says, you have no life in yourselves, right? You have no life in yourselves. Are they dead? No, they're alive, right? So he says, if I said to you, I have no life in yourself, but you're standing there, you'd say, no, I'm right here. I do have life. So he can't be talking about the physical realm. Otherwise, like you said, they wouldn't be there because they have no life. So he's not talking about physical life and literal flesh. And then he says it right there. I don't know how much more clear he could have been. You have no life in yourselves. Well, they'd have to then begin to wonder, right? So what is he talking about? Because I'm standing here and listening to his words. So even in this verse where he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's clear that he's talking metaphorically, that he's not talking about physical flesh and blood. It's, it's right there in the verse. You have no life in yourself. So there, you don't have to wonder or say, well, I think he's talking metaphorically. He says he's talking metaphorically. We just miss it, just like they miss it. The, the, every, the, every word that is written in the scripture is important. Okay, Even the very terms that he uses in, are important, such as in this passage, Sarks, because he would literally give his physical body on the cross. So you've got to be able to switch and understand the scripture to move from the physical to the metaphorical back to the physical, because Christ does in this passage. He moves back and forth, and the people clearly remain in the physical. And everything he says metaphorically, they miss. They misinterpret, they misunderstand, they ultimately give up and walk away, because they can't make the switch between metaphorical and literal. But you have to in order to understand this passage. You've got to move back and forth because Christ does. And he tells us when to do that. Right here, he just gives us great indication that he's talking metaphorically. All right, now, as we continue to go on down through this, well, let me, let me give you another term here in this passage. You see where he says, that you have no life in yourselves. That word life. Okay, there are two words in the Greek that can be interpreted as life. One is, would give you, you have no trouble understanding. That would be bios, meaning what? Physical life, right? I mean, it's a word that we get biology from. It's talking about the literal physical reign. The other is zoe, okay? And zoe is a more noble term. Zoe speaks of the spirit and the soul of a person. So guess which word Christ uses here? Zoe. And in, you know, in our language, you can't really tell the difference, right? Because we talk about spiritual life and physical life. They don't. They talk about physical bios and spiritual zoe. And they're not the same word. They're, they're different terms, and so they should have been listening to what he said. Go ahead. The spelling of what is that word you're saying? So, so Zoe? Z O E. Z O E. I think it's Strong's Word 2222, I believe. 
And so get a good Strong's concordance and look it up, and I, I believe it's 2222. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. And even spelled very similar. So um, he doesn't use the word bios. And it should have been clear to them that he's talking about something other than physical life. Because he uses this term that you wouldn't use to speak of physical life. So if he, if he would have been talking about it, he would have said bios. If that's what he really meant, that's the word that he would have used. But he didn't. So another key in this one verse that he's talking metaphorically is that the life he's talking about is spiritual life, spirit and soul. And by the way, I think in the scriptures that spirit and soul mean exactly the same thing. A lot of people parse those differently. I think they're synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. They're not two different things. So just sometimes you use um, spirit and sometimes you use soul. Okay, so going on from there, you begin to look at verse 53, uh, 54, and he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, now what does this sound like? You're going to die. The words that he speaks in this verse. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and I'll raise you up on the last day. What does that sound like? Come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Yeah, look at verse 39 and 40 also. Remember this? The two definitions of the will of God concerning the sovereignty of man, of the salvation of man. You remember what he said? Verse 39, he says, I'll find it. Right, and then forty. For this is the will of my Father. For everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on the last day. You go over and you read the verse that we were just in, verse uh, fifty-four, right? And he says, "He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." Go back and, and read forty again. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him on the last day. Do those sound very, very similar? I mean, almost exactly the same, right? Except, go ahead, Gary. 54th verse establishes the point you made earlier of moving from the spiritual back and forth to the physical. Absolutely. first statement He moves back and forth in this passage between the... Uh, spiritual and the physical. And you've got to make that transition and follow him or she won't understand what he says. Now, based on verse 40, you remember verse 39 speaks about um, the sovereignty of God and salvation of men from God's perspective, right? But verse 40 speaks about what? The responsibility of men in that sovereignty of God. Okay, so that's where he's at. Because you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about what people must do in this participation in their own salvation, right? We would never say that the will of men does not cooperate and agree with the will of God in the salvation of people. It does. Anyone who is saved must believe. You're not a robot, okay? Now, 
we believe in the sovereignty of God that those whom he calls and, and shows Jesus that they will place faith in him. But you must believe. Never does salvation come apart from the person being saved believing. They must. That's uh, one of the requirements of salvation. So, in this passage, comparing those two verses, when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, what, what is that speaking of? What does that mean? What, what is the interpretation of that based on what he's already said? Eat my flesh and drink my blood means what? Except his sacrificial death, believing in Christ. It's no different than that. I mean, literally, the, the, the two verses could be transposed, just changing those middle words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood with beholding the Son and believing in him, and they'd be exactly the same. Would they not? I mean, it's the exact same teaching, just using different words. And in the first part, when he's in verse 40, he's talking about what you must do in order to have eternal life. You must behold the Son and believe in him. And then he, over in the latter passage, he's speaking metaphorically. He's extending this metaphor of bread that he's been using all the way through this down to his literal sacrifice on the cross. And he says, you've got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And what he means is you have to accept for yourself. The believe in Christ means it goes all the way to the cross. Not just believe he's a good miracle worker and a good teacher, which is where these people were at, and that he could heal people physically, but you must accept the sacrifice on the cross as the teaching of Christ, and that is what salvation is. That's what believing in Christ means, is that you accept the atoning work on the cross. Go ahead, Michael. Um, Is there the possibility, since he's speaking to a, a Jewish, a Hebrew audience, that he's also using part of the analogy for their sacrificial system? Well, Required to eat after the sacrifice. Right, but never with the, the never with the blood. So he is speaking of the sacrificial system because everything in the sacrificial system did what? Pointed to Christ. All of it is about the coming Messiah who will ultimately be sacrificed as the Lamb of God. Go ahead. I think about. I mean, he's compared. He's he's making the contrast between the original manna. And himself now, I mean, as he said, your father ate the man in the wilderness and they died. I mean, they would have, they would have needed to eat that manna to live, to live physically. Right. And if they didn't, they would have died. They would have starved to death. And here he's saying that we need to recognize that, you know, Jesus' body uh, being the sacrifice on the cross and Jesus' blood washing us from our sin, that we need to look at that and say, we need that. We will die if we don't have that. That is what will save us. That is the spiritual nourishment. That is the thing that we must cling to when he's saying, believe in me. Because like you said earlier, there are plenty of people that say that they believe in Jesus, but they don't really, they don't want to talk about his sacrifice. They don't want to talk about their sin and the need for salvation, their need for atonement. Right. Believe in Jesus. I think that's what he's saying. You can't believe in me if you don't, if you don't believe in my cross and my atonement. If any of you got that book that I recommended oh, a long time ago about the founding fathers of the United States and you read, through, you read that book, then you'll find this is where most of them were at. That they believed Jesus was a good teacher. They believed in his uh, moral teachings. But when it came to him being God and giving his body as a sacrifice for atoning sins, they disregarded that. They rejected that. 
They did not believe that. That's where these Jews are at. Same place where these unbelieving Jews are at. Oh. <laughs> the religious belief of the founding fathers, something like that, right? I, I have that book if somebody wants to borrow it. It's a good book. It's a good book. <laughs> the religious, yeah, I'll, I'll get you the exact. I think it's the religious belief of the founding fathers. If you put that in uh, a Google, you'll find the book. Okay. And uh, go ahead. Uh, obviously, the Jews that he was speaking to wouldn't have uh, that understanding of the cross and the, nece- the necessity to believe in that. It hadn't happened yet. Right. Right. So. Why would Jesus use such a provocative term um, that they have no reference to? Why would he do that? I think the answer is given a little bit later. And, you know, we've talked about this before. I think it's verse 63. He wants to weed out the crowd? Yep. 65, um, yeah. What, what was their, what should have been their interpretation? Well, he, when he wants to weed out the crowd, what do we mean by that? What did he want to show them? Their unbelief. Well, I think what he wants to do is, uh, in order for um, an unbeliever to be declared guilty before God, he must um, be shown his unbelief, that you heard the truth, you rejected the truth, and you walked away from it. And that's what these people are doing. Christ is saying, I mean, he said it plainly, right, back in verse 34, It was it? Maybe 35, somewhere right in here? 35, 35 where he says... Uh, Jesus said, no, 36, but I said to you that you have seen me, you beheld me, and yet you do not believe. That's the issue here. That's what's at stake. This is what Christ is trying to show them. You don't believe what I say. Truly, 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 I say to you. I mean, how many times could he say it, right? Four times. He says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm speaking the words of truth, and yet you see me, but you don't believe me. He wants to show them their unbelief, their rejection of the truth. Hold on a second. Go ahead, Randy. Let's say that Christ said early on that he was going to talk in parables of. Yeah. This is not a parable, parable teaching, though, right? No, I agree. This is as straightforward as you can get. But it's, it's masked, and he talks about mm-hmm. that. It is mass, but in this, this passage, I mean, when he teaches in parables, yes. In this passage, no. Chapter 5, no. He is absolutely straightforwardly giving them the truth. I mean, he said it over and over. I am the bread of life. How much more straightforward could he be? And you must eat this bread to have eternal life. I mean, I don't know what else he could have said. Now, clearly, when he gets into the metaphor, it's confusing to them. And they don't follow but the reason they don't follow is because they don't believe what he says. Now, if I had some guy who was doing all this stuff and saying, I'm telling you the truth, I would at least think about it, right? But they couldn't because God hadn't given them light. So, go ahead. You know, it would seem that in the Jewish mindset, the only thing in their history, and even in the Word, that they can relate eating flesh to is those horrible, horrible times of famine mm-hmm. that were part of Israel's history yeah. for so many times. And I can't help but think he's using 
this this metaphor, and it would seem like something you would want to stay away from. Right. Because this is what is going to conjure up in their minds. That's the only link that they have to that. I mean, their history includes that. The most horrible time, some of the most horrible times of their history. Right. Yeah, he is, I mean, this is, you know, if you were the feel-good teacher, you'd stay away from all this, right? Right, he doesn't. He marches straight through it because those Old Testament give light to what's going on in the life of Christ and the sacrifice he'll ultimately give. Those aren't just stories to be stories. They all point toward the Savior. Kyle, do you want to say something? Yeah, I just was hoping you could clarify. Earlier you were talking about this and not having reference to um, any communion. Right. Um, and you were contrasting it with the uh, transubstantiation understanding. Right. Uh, the symbolism of eating my flesh and drinking my blood that he says here mm-hmm. is in reference to the cross. And the symbolism of the bread and the cup, which he says, this is my body, this is my flesh, this is my blood do this in remembrance of me is right. a reference to the cross also. Yeah. So I'm just wondering why there would why disconnect those two? Why yeah, why wouldn't you put them together with a proper understanding of communion as opposed to just well, opposing to the transubstantiation. And when we get to chapter fourteen we will. We'll put them together. Okay? Okay. So we'll take we'll take it John as he gives it to us. Okay. We're just not there yet. Right? So when we get over there and he does say those things. Here, have a piece of bread. It's my flesh. You'll know what he's talking about because we have a proper understanding of what's going on in this passage, right? And th- that would have been crystal clear to the disciples on that night before when he was betrayed. It would have just been, I understand exactly what he's saying. Okay, so <laughs> take just a little different slant on this. You must eat my bread you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Now, if you go back to chapter 1, how did John present Jesus Christ to us? Behold the Lamb of God. Well, that's, yeah, that's a little later. That's what, the, um, that's what John the Baptist says, right? Yeah, verse 14, right? I mean, he talks about the word in the very opening being with God and the word was God and all of that. And then he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh. And then he's using this analogy that you must accept my sacrifice um, on the cross is, is basically what he's talking about. Because otherwise he wouldn't have said, and the, um, I give my flesh for the life of the world. I told you, verse 51 kind of keys you into a lot of stuff. The very last thing that he says, he said it for a reason. Jesus knew what he was planning to do, and here he's doing it, right? His teaching is clear. All right, so when you think about Christ being the word, becoming flesh, dwelling among us, eating the bread and drinking the cup clearly means to accept the sacrificial work of Christ based on the verse that we just looked at, right? That he who eats my dread blood, bread, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he'll have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. The same thing he said back in verse 40. Well, here's just a little different thought about it. So eating the bread and drinking the blood means what based on John chapter 1? 
believing his word. Believing the scriptures about him, right? Now, if I came to you and I said, you've got to eat the word of God, would you struggle with that? No. Well, the word of God is Christ himself. So eating the word of God and eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood is no different. It's the same. Because the word of God literally became flesh and blood. So it's all is, is clearly metaphorical and spiritual, but it's the same thing. So if I came to you and said, eat the word of God, like John does over in Revelation 14, where he eats the, the book that's in the hand of the big angel that stands on the water and stands on the land. And God says to him, go and take the book. And then as he takes the book, the angel says to him, eat the book and it'll be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach. And he says, I ate the book and it was sweet in my mouth, meaning the word of God is sweet to the believers. And then it gets into his stomach and he begins to understand the implications of the lack of salvation of all those enemies of God. And it becomes bitter because he gets sick to his stomach thinking what God's getting ready to do to these people. And so that, that's no different than Christ saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's the same thing as God said to John, and eat the scroll, eat the, eat the book that's in the hand of the angel. If I said to you, eat the word of God, you'd have no trouble with that. You know exactly what I mean. That's where you get your nourishment spiritually from. That's where you grow from and it sustains you. That's the same thing that Christ is saying in this passage. It's no different. Hold on, let me go here. Also coming back to the analogy of like the manna, because it seems like that would be a, a clear... You guys do this all the time. It's in the next couple of verses, okay? We're not there yet. Christ will do that also. The manna's coming. We're just not there yet. You're always ahead of me. Go ahead, Michael. It's starting to sound also like he's talking about justification, sanctification, and glorification really all tied up in this one verse. Well, it is, right? It is all tied up together. Because, I mean, go back to Romans chapter 8, that those things don't come separately, right? right? They all come together. It's a package. You get one, you get the other. They, they cannot be separated. If, if you're saved, then you're going to ultimately be glorified. There is no, no question about that. It's substantiated in what God has declared. And so those things can't be separated. They are all packaged together. So, that, I mean, he said, and here he's saying that you have eternal life is the way Christ always spoke about it. But all those other truths that came out in the epistles go with that, right? That's what that means when Christ says you have eternal life. It's all a hand. Um, could, we, could you not also see eat as consumed? Sure it is. You're not, you're consuming, you're incorporating, and that gives you eternal life as opposed to in Hebrews, he who tastes mm-hmm. and falls away. Right. But we're not just tasting. Right. You're talking about chapter 6 of Hebrews where he says those who taste and fall away. And this is what I believe my interpretation of that is. The Spirit gives a level of understanding, and yet people still reject. So they tasted of the sweetness. You have to consume. You have to eat. Absolutely. And, and, and people who have trouble with that chapter 6, you know, just, I, I usually say go read chapters 2 and 4 because they say the same thing. You know, um, that, six, that chapter 6 of Hebrews is all of a sudden not a new teaching. He's already said it twice before that. 
So when you get to chapter 6, it's the same understanding that there's a level of understanding that the Spirit can give people, but it's not salvation. Those are the people he's talking about in that passage. And you're right. They taste, but they don't ingest. Yeah, you have to totally consume it. That's right. And drink the blood behind it, right? Beginning to get an understanding of what he's saying. So go back over to, we'll get to the manna, okay? You guys will be happy. We'll get to the manna. Chapter 6, and now down in verse 55. He says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now Christ is making a reference to what he said earlier. Okay, he's, he's reflecting back on what he said. Now, you tell me the verse where he said it. Thirty-three. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. But before that, in 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And now he says, my flesh is the true bread. My blood is the true drink. See, he's reflecting. This, this Christ in these last two passages, because they're grumbling, and then they begin to argue, is repeating what he's already taught them, so it will be clear. So they can't miss it. He, I mean, there's nothing new here. He's just using different words to say the same thing that he's already said. And so he finally stands up and says, here is the truth. My flesh is the true bread. My blood is the true drink. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. How much clearer could that be, right? I mean, how much more straightforward could he have said it? No way. And then you take verse 40 and put it together with what he said. And when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know that he means that you must behold me and believe in me. And you must believe all the way through the sacrifice on the cross, which is why he's using flesh and blood here. Not just believe I'm a good teacher, but believe in the sacrifice that I'm going to give. Because what, what do I give for the life of the world? I give my flesh. See, he's putting it all together here. They... You know, we understand that men can only understand as God gives light, right? How gracious he is to have given us light and should be praised for it. These people didn't have the light. They had the true light standing before them, but their minds were darkened. So they didn't accept. They didn't believe. Christ is being very straightforward. Go ahead. And really, he's he's really doing an excellent job of, of teaching pedagogically nothing else. I mean, if they've, they've eaten this, I'm a teacher, sorry. They've, they've eaten this bread, they fed the 5,000, so he's taking that thing as a stepping stone. Absolutely. Talk about um, that this this is not the real bread. You know, I just, I just fed you bread, but you're, you know, you're going to be hungry again, but I can give you true bread. And then he compares that to manna and says that it's not like the manna which your, which your father's ate. And died. and died. Yeah, because that was that was not true bread either. Mm-hmm. I'm true bread, and he's trying to get them to understand that it's not bread that's going to make you live; it's the word of God, mm-hmm. and that He is the word of God. Yeah, and you, like you say, He takes them and steps them deeper and deeper and deeper into this truth, 
as he as he opens it up for them. Go ahead. <laughs> what I just said. You you build upon concept upon concept. You build upon it. Go ahead. Don't you think this verse this also speaks to Christ being an acceptable sacrifice that to satisfy God's wrath? The true Yeah. Yeah, the true um, I mean, yes. <laughs> I do. I mean, because he is the true bread. That's what he's trying to tell them. That's what he wants them to understand, knowing that they can't. But, I mean, this, this is opened up. This is stark truth in your face. But yet you don't believe. That's what he says to them. All right, keep going. Verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and he uses a different term here, abides in me and I in him. So what does it mean to eat the bread and drink the uh, blood? As, as Paul said, we died with him, so also will we live with him. Right. Abide in Christ. Now, the word abide means what? Remain. Remain, to stay. Let me show you where it's used physically and then spiritually by John. It's used multiple times physically. Look over in chapter 1. I mean, very straightforward understanding. You'll have no trouble with this. Chapter 1, down in verse 38 and 39. Verses 38 and 39. Very, very straightforward passage. This is when he first met a couple of John himself, right? And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? That word staying is the exact same word that he just used to say you must abide in me. Then their answer, he turns and answers. He said to them, come and see and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. Same word. So abide means what? To stay in one place. Right? To stay in one place. Then look down in chapter 2. I mean, this is the literal understanding of the word. Chapter 2 and verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days, stayed in one place. That's the word abide. It means to come and um, continue in one place, to remain in one place. That's what the word literally means. Now, Christ here talking about um, you abide in me, is that a literal speaking or is it metaphorical? <laughs> Which one? I think it's a bit both. Well, take it, take it, take it literally. Do you stay in someone? Do you stay? I mean, I come to your house. Do I stay in you? No, I stay in your house, right? So he's talking metaphorically here because you can't stay in me. All right. So look over at chapter fifteen where he uses the word metaphorically. Christ is still teaching. So, see, he moves between physical and, and metaphorical, spiritual, back and forth. And you've got to stay with him. Otherwise, you won't know what he's talking about. So, this is a glorious, glorious chapter. I mean, it's just overwhelming. Matter of fact, starting in 14, it's just overwhelming. And we'll be overwhelmed when we get there one day. 
if the Lord wills and Jesus tarries, we will get there. Start in verse 4. Abide in me. The, the, abide every time is the same word. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Not talking about literally being in Christ, right? Oh, we, spiritually, yes. Physically, no. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Eat the flesh and drink the blood means what? To abide in Christ. Now, out of this passage I just read, there are at least six things that he tells us abiding in Christ is. What are they? This is what he means when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will abide in me. Here is how you do it. This is what you do. As you eat the bread and drink the flesh. This is what he means. What are they? All right, bear fruit's one of them. You'll keep my commandments is one of them. You'll obey Christ. What else? All right, yeah, and I think that's one. His words will live in you. What else? Just keep reading. Some of that God will be glorified, right? That's what being in, that's what uh, drinking the blood and, and uh, eating the flesh means. What else? All right, we'll be in his love, we'll experience, let's say, the love of God, right? What else? Say it again. That we'll be his disciples, right? I mean, there's all these, this is what it means to eat the flesh and drink the blood. Because that is abiding in Christ. And here is the further explanation of what it means to abide in Christ. So this is what, when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life, this is it. This is the definition. Not only believe in Christ, but these things are true in your life. Go ahead. Okay. Um, The only thing that I have a question about, I guess, is um, the difference in abiding versus staying, where you read it before, you know, where are you staying? Right. That's the literal, right? I've always thought of this um, as, as a deeper than staying. Because staying is visiting somebody. But you're still not, I mean, if I visit you and I live in your, I visit in your home, mm-hmm. it's not my home, it is your home, and I am staying with you temporarily. Mm-hmm. But abiding is not staying temporarily. Abiding in the spiritual sense is being comfortable, making this your home, making this who you, where you are, mm-hmm. where you live. Where you... Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I, and I think that um, in the in the words we just read, I'm I'm positive that Christ says that. Um, I think he'll say exactly that in the next couple of verses as we get to them. I think he'll say exactly that that abiding is deeper and richer. But abiding does mean to remain, 
that you, this is something that happens temporarily. This is something that goes on. And he's talking metaphorically, right? And so the life he's talking about is how long? Eternal. It's for eternal. So that's what these things are. That's what he's talking about. He who eats my, bread, uh, eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Here is the eternal life. All right, so go back over to chapter 6 and let's finish out what he says here. Because I think some of this will become very clear. In verse 57, this is what you were talking about. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. Now think about what Christ is saying here. He compares your abiding in him with what? His abiding with the Father. You know, we've, we talked about this several times, right? When Christ said that I can do nothing apart from the Father, what did he mean? That they're intertwined. They are one and the same. That what the Father does, I do what I do the Father does. There's no separation. There's no thing I can do that the Father wouldn't do. There's nothing the Father does that I wouldn't do. They're intertwined to such an intimate level that they are the same thing. In this verse, Christ says the same is true about us and Christ, that we're so intertwined that his will is our will. Now, I ask you a question, okay? Is that always true in your life? It's not always true in my life. Why not? We're still being... Well, we're still trapped in our humanness, okay? I think it would be the way I would say it, because that's the way John puts it, right? Still trapped in your human... Paul puts it. You're still trapped in your humanness. It's more than that. Christ always what? He said it many times. I what? Do the will of the Father. When is my intimacy decreased? When I don't do the will of Christ. If I always did the will of Christ, then this intimacy that I would have with him would be equivalent to the intimacy he had with the Father. So that's why he says... Those who abide in me obey my commandments. They always do what I tell them to do. Our intimacy with Christ diminishes when we don't do that. Christ never, never didn't do the will of the Father. Never. So their intimacy was perfect and complete. Ours ultimately will be when we're glorified. But here, not always true, right? That's why. Because we don't always do what the Father says. Go ahead, Jerry. Principle right there of our present imperfections. It's mindful, or it's beneficial, and I think we ought to always be mindful. God never commands us to live perfectly. Right. He says He commands us to live obediently. Now, when you sin, when I sin as a believer, what's the only obedient response we can make? Repentance. Which establishes the fact that repentance should be a daily part of every believer's life. Because it's in that context that we are being sanctified to ultimately. And as you do that, as you daily confess your sins and seek forgiveness and admit to them and number them and uh, refrain from them that day and grow in, in your obedience to Christ, so your intimacy with Christ grows. And, and matures and becomes complete or more complete. 
And and Christ says here, it's not like it's a possibility, it's true. Because he uh, uses the analogy as you and me, so I and the Father. They're the same kind of intimacy. It is possible to be at an intimate level with Christ. Go ahead. I don't think that that's something that we get as Christians. I know that I certainly, most of my Christian life, have not understood that. And I'm only beginning to understand our true communion with Christ. Because um, if you if you meditate on Ephesians 1, you know, in Him, the whole in Him's, if you look at all those statements, over and over, talk about if any man is in Christ, that whole idea of being in Christ, we don't get that. Because if we got that, we would have so much more victory over sin. I mean, in our in the daily, I mean, we have victory over sin. I'm not saying that, but I'm talking about in the practical day to day living. If we understood that, and when we do rightly understand that, sin has like no power. Over it. I mean, it doesn't anyway. But I mean, you think it does sometimes. Well, it's difference in knowing the truth and experiencing the truth. There is a difference, and it's all based upon obedience. Go ahead, Randy. I was going to say something that uh, I've been working through Matthew. And in chapter 11, verse 20, 21, just kind of stood out to me the other day. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Yeah. Because they did not repent. And then he goes on to talk about the cities and so on. Because he says, Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago and in sackcloth and ashes. So the idea there is that renewing of your mind, as Jerry was saying, you can't have a proper relationship with Christ if you're not repenting. Sure. So, and it shows here, though, that at some point, that can run out. From, from believers, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. See what he says there that I just said? Well, well, Revelation is all about the patience of God running out, right? In his ordained will, it's enough. It is, it is, it's overwhelming. Finish Finish the passage with me, okay? Last verse, we get to the manna. Here it is, okay? It's where you kept going and, and everything you said was accurate and right. And here he says it. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. What is? I mean, he's like, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, right? Here it is, in living color. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This is the point that Christ has been trying to make through the whole discourse. This is the truth that he's trying to give them, that this is the bread of life, and he who eats it, lives forever. He who abides in me, he who believes in me, he who consumes me, all of those things that we've been saying, that Christ was saying in the spiritual realm, all those analogies and metaphorical statements that he was making. And here he says, your fathers ate bread out of heaven, but it wasn't the true bread because they died. And matter of fact, they died in their sin. And here he says, here is the true bread he who eats it will never die, and yet you don't believe. So this is the point that he's been trying to make through this whole discourse. This is, this is why he fed the 5,000 on the hillside the day before with bread. 
so that he could come and stand before them and said, that's all just physical bread. Here is the true abiding spiritual bread. And you have to eat this bread and drink the juice of the bread or you'll die. You'll not live forever. And so, I mean, he's, you know, on that hillside, he asked his disciples a question because he knew what he was intending to do. This is what he was intending to do, was give them this teaching that you would think they couldn't miss. But they continued to reject and misunderstand, remain in the physical realm and never think spiritually. And so they were lost. They walk away. We'll see that next week. They, they walk away from Christ. This is too hard. I can't understand this. I'm just going to leave. And they do. In droves, they all leave. Only a few people stay with him. He's been in Galilee for a year and a half, working miracles, teaching, and all that, and here are the people leaving. You're right. Really? Yeah, really. Because God didn't give them light to understand. Questions? Statements? Something you want to say? Sobering, is it not? The master teacher teaching the people and they miss it. We all just feel special. Um, Going through this kind of reminds me when I read through Ezekiel um, a long time ago, but it was talking about the the angel or whoever it was went to him and said that you must eat of the scroll. Mm -hmm. And then he goes through and he talks about you will have a new heart, a renewed mind, and everything that you do in life is going to change because you're going to want to do the will of God. Mm -hmm. Is that like the same reflection on that? Yeah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all of them talk about this time of renewal, this time of, uh, you know, and it uses Israel as the example, but metaphorically it's talking about true life in the believers. That's what the prophets talk about, right? That's what, the pe- that's what these people were looking for, just with a misunderstanding of literal instead of spiritual. Christ gives them exactly what the prophet said he would, and they miss it because they remained in the physical. It's a good passage. Thanks for your time.